Our sermon today is taken from Romans chapter 5, verse 20 to chapter 6, verse 14. Here is the word of God. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Thus says the Lord. Friends, we are continuing today in our series through the book of Romans, and we are currently at the end of chapter 5, moving into chapter 6. And what we find here in this part of the book is that Paul here is talking about a different aspect of the Christian life than he was in the previous chapters. If in the previous chapters, Paul has been talking about how someone can be saved, which is not by doing good things and not by earning religious points or not through their own morality, but by receiving forgiveness through what Christ has done for them on the cross, and that alone. Now, here at the end of chapter 5 into chapter 6, Paul is addressing an important follow-up question that I think many of us have after hearing about such forgiveness, and it's this. If I'm already forgiven in Christ, why then should I still do all the hard work of obeying God? I'm forgiven, right? So not, why not just live however I want? And, and non-Christians ask this question too, by the way. A, a famous poet, W.H. Auden, who, who was an atheist. Some say he became a Christian at the end of his life, but no one really knows for sure. During his atheist years, he, he said a sarcastic comment. He said this about the Christian gospel. He said, I like committing crimes. God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is finely arranged. <laughs> And yes, that was kind of sarcastic, but before you dismiss his comment as being mean and sarcastic, I hope we also hear the healthy fear that exists behind those words. Auden was scared that Christians will end up using their gospel as a license to sin. And now, of course, you and I, or, you know, we would never say that. You know, we'd never say that the gospel is a license to sin, but to be honest, experientially, I can't deny that oftentimes 
I've abused grace in that exact way. Haven't you? I suspect that many of us have willfully sinned because in the back of our heads we thought to ourselves, well, you know, God forgives me anyway, so you ever do that? You know why we do that? Well, that's why what Paul addresses here in this passage. The reason why we often do that, Paul says here, is because we have an incomplete view of what actually happened to us when we were saved. We, we think all that happened to us is that our sins are forgiven, and that's it. But, but that's an incomplete understanding. And if you, think, if you think that's all that happened to you, then of course you're going to be tempted to abuse this great mercy that you've been given. So what actually happened to us when we got saved? And how does this understanding protect us from abusing grace? Okay, I want to point out three things that Paul mentions here about us, you, a forgiven Christian. You should no longer sin because your heart was made righteous, your whole person was recreated, and your physical body is spiritually significant. The Christian should not abuse grace because your heart was made righteous, your whole person was recreated, and your physical body is spiritually significant. Let's move to our first point. Your heart was made righteous. Let's take a look at the first verse of the passage here, Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Okay, let's talk about this verse. What does it mean that when the law came, it increased the trespass? Well, we've talked about this a lot in our previous sermons in the book of Romans. It means that when the written law, or in other words, when the Ten Commandments came in, came down to us through Moses in Exodus chapter 20, when, that, when, that, when those laws came in, sin at that point was clearly declared on writing as legally wrong. It's like in your company or in your workplace, you know, you start seeing something bad happen a lot. You write down a law to prevent it from happening further. For example, people start to misuse company finances. So you write down a law and you say, you can't get reimbursed by the company unless you have receipts. It's on paper now. Or you see women start getting harassed a lot in your workplace. You write down a law and you say, if you treat women inappropriately, there's going to be consequences to it. You write it down, you publish it, you officiate it, you make it legal. Now, when you do that, you're not saying that before these laws were written down, it's okay to commit financial misconduct or sexual harassment. Of course, you're not saying that. It's still wrong. It's always going to be wrong to do those things. All you're saying is that now there are written laws against them. Now it's legally binding. And if you do those things, it will make you legally guilty. Whereas before, you'd still be in the wrong, but there's nothing written down to make you legally guilty for it. That's why in verse 20, Paul used the phrase, trespass. When the law came, it increased the trespass. Trespass there is a legal term. So this makes sense of the rest of the verse. So when Paul says here that when law came, sin increased, he's not talking about the amount of sins committed that increased. He's talking about the legal power that sin has increased. And where the legal power of sin increased, Paul continues in verse 20, grace increases all the more. This is how we make sense of this verse. Paul's not saying it's okay to sin because you're forgiven. Grace increased all the more. No, all he's saying is that in Christ, legally speaking, the legal debt we owe because of our sin, that's paid for. And no matter how much legal debt, incre our illegal debt increases in the future, it's paid for. 
you will no longer in Christ owe God any legal debt for breaking his laws. That's specifically what Paul is talking about here, the legal aspect of it. Now, here's a big question then. Wouldn't that kind of doctrine, we ask alongside W.H. Auden, wouldn't that kind of doctrine give people a license to sin? If there's no legal consequence for sinning, wouldn't that then just make people sin like all the time? But think about that for a second. Imagine asking your coworker, hey, why don't you commit sexual harassment? And their answer is this, man, because there are legal consequences to it. That's the reason. Would you feel comfortable with that answer? Wouldn't you be asking, really, that's it? That's like the only motivation of why you're not sexually harassing women because you're legally bound not to do it? Would you let your daughter go on a date with this guy? Probably not. Hey, uh, why aren't you stealing money from the company? Because these laws won't let me do it. Is that answer satisfying to you? Is that what you want to hear? No. What answer do you want to hear? You want to hear someone say this. I don't commit sexual harassment because regardless of whatever legal restrictions I have, it's simply wrong. And it disgusts me to think about treating women that way, even if I'm legally allowed to do it. I don't want to do it because it's wrong. That's what you want to hear. I'm not stealing from the company simply because it's wrong. And it gets my gut all tangled up and twisted, thinking about disadvantaging others for my own gain. I can't stomach doing it, even if legally there are no consequences to it. That's what you want to hear, isn't it? Because none of us want to live in a society where everyone's acting righteous just because they're purely legally bound to do so. I, I'm not saying legal consequences should be, shouldn't be part of society. That's not what I'm saying. There should be legal consequences. All I'm saying is that if you are righteous just because you're obeying a legal law, that is not a portrayal of mature human beings. Someone who is righteous just because they are legally bound to be, that's not the kind of people you want to have a community with. Neither is that the kind of people who God envisions to have in his kingdom. You know who we want to be around? You know how we, who we want to be? We want to be, be a people whose ethics is not merely dictated by external laws of righteousness, but whose ethics is ruled by an internal righteousness that has reigned in our hearts. Look at verse 21. That's what Paul means when he said, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness. To reign there is to rule, to overpower. It's like when you fall in love with someone. They reign over your heart. They rule over your thoughts. They overpower you. See, the born-again Christian obeys God's laws and lives righteously, not because they're legally bound to do so by a set of laws, but because God has performed heart surgery on them. And he's given them a new heart that is now in love with righteousness. That's why they obey God, even if they're no longer legally bound to obey them. Let me read to you what God said in Ezekiel chapter 36. Here's what he said. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you 
and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Let me ask you this from that passage. Why does the Christian walk in God's statutes and why is the Christian careful to obey God's rules? Because he or she is legally bound to a set of laws? No, because they have a new heart that won't let them do otherwise. Righteousness, in other words, for the true born-again Christian is not a submission to a set of external laws. It's an internal reality. What an important question to be asking ourselves. Deep inside, why are you obeying God's laws? Is it because you're scared of the legal consequences if you disobey these external laws? Or is it because you found this strange new heart residing in you that just keeps tugging at your soul whenever you consider doing otherwise? If you say the words that people in Romans chapter 6, verse 1 said, we can just continue to sin so that grace may abound. You know, we're forgiven, so just sin. If that's what you're saying, here's what I think Paul would say. You know what? Give it a go. And if your heart lets you do that, long term, without any desire to repent, without any sense of remorse, then that's a good sign that you may not be born again and that you do not possess this new heart. What a scary warning, but in the same breath, if you do experience remorse for your sins, if you do experience sorrow and grief from disobeying God, even when there are no longer any legal consequences anymore, but simply because you have a new heart now that won't let you disobey God for long periods of time, if, if you feel that, then rejoice and be glad because that's a sign that you do have a new beating heart. And to you who possess this new internal spiritual beating heart, to you who righteousness has been made an internal reality, not just a, obedience to an external set of laws, it is then, I think, safe to say that where sin, when sin increases, grace abounds all the more because Christ Jesus has taken all the pains of your debt and he has made you innocent from all the legal consequences of your sins, yesterday, today, and forever. That's the first thing that Paul explains here in this passage as to what happens to you when you got saved. Yes, your legal consequences of your sins, that's, that's deleted, that's paid for, but also you've been given a new heart. Righteousness has reigned over you. And righteousness to you now has become more than just an issue of external legality. It's become an internal power that reigns in your heart. But that's not all that changed about you. When God saved you, it wasn't just your heart that he transformed, but it was your whole person that he made new, which leads us to our second point. Your whole person was recreated. All right, let's continue in chapter 6, verses 3 to 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death and were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, these, these two verses are so packed, it can be a sermon or a series of sermons on its own. But let me just do a brief overview to it. Let me just clarify here. Paul here is not saying 
that baptism saves you. Okay, that's not what he's saying. How do you know that? Because in chapters 1 to 5, Paul over and over and over again has been saying that you are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Receiving Christ as Lord and Savior, you're saved through that alone. Okay, no act of obedience saves you, including baptism. That much is clear. But on the same note, in our attempt of not wanting to make too much of baptism, some of us, I suspect, have swung the pendulum way too far the other side, and we've made too little of it as if it's just purely kind of symbolic, as if there's no real power in it at all. There is. There is. And due to time restrictions, here's all I can really say about that. The water of baptism doesn't save you. Faith does. But neither is baptism just a symbolic act. True union with Christ happens somehow through it, just like your wedding day doesn't create the marriage. Love does. But the vows you say that day and the experiences surrounding that day is more than just a symbolic act. True union with one another really happened through it. And that's all I can say about it right now without getting into a rabbit hole. If you still have questions, as I always say, feel free to email Gray. Um, Let's get back to our passage. When you receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, which back then would have also meant that you're baptized. There's no such thing as an unbaptized Christian back then. When that happened to you, you were truly then united to Jesus Christ, Paul is saying, and in a real way, that the death and resurrection Jesus went through, you somehow went through as well. That's what verses 3 to 5 here is talking about. And the best way I can explain it, again, just for clarity's sake, is like a marriage. When you're married to your spouse, you're so united with them that what happened to them in a real way kind of happens to you too, not just symbolically, but truly. Like if they get fired from their job, their sadness, their disappointment, their fear, their anxiety, you feel that as well. It's almost as if you kind of got fired, although you weren't. And if they got promoted, the happiness, the excitement, the pride that they feel, you experience as well. You feel as well. It's almost as if you got promoted, although you weren't promoted. What happened to them, more than just symbolically, but in a real, tangible, emotive, practical, real, true way somehow, also happened to you. Now, that's not a perfect analogy. No analogies are. But hopefully that helps make this concept just a little bit more tangible. When God saved you, what happened? What happened is that he united you to Christ, not just symbolically, but in a very real way, like a marriage. To where what happened to him in the real way happened to you. So when he died, you, like actually, truly, not just symbolically, somehow also died. And when he was raised from the dead, you, more than just symbolically, but really, truly, somehow, was raised from the dead. That's what verses 3 to 4, uh, 3 to 7 is about. But the question is now, and this is important, who died? Who died? And who was raised again? Look at verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him. This is, this is, I think, really important. Take note of who Paul said died when you got saved. Your old self. Not just a part of yourself. Not just the bad version of yourself. But your old self in his or her entirety. When you accept that Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, in other words, 
you didn't just become a new and improved version of yourself. You didn't just become a kinder version of yourself. You didn't just become a more ethical and a more religious version of yourself. You know what you became? You were recreated as a whole new person. What was crucified with Christ, a commentator said, was not a part of me, but the whole of me. The old Tazar really died. And there's a new creature that emerged. The, the old you really died, all of it. And something else emerged. So then, you may be asking, if it's that drastic of a switch, if I'm a new creature, why do I still sin? And that's a good question. And let me answer it using an Old Testament story. When God freed Israel from Egypt, were they truly a new people? Yes. Absolutely. They were no longer Pharaoh's slaves. They were new persons with a whole new identity, with a whole new status. So then why did they want to go back to Egypt all the time? Not because they were still Pharaoh's slaves. Pharaoh's dead. Pharaoh doesn't exist anymore. They're new people now. So why do they keep wanting to go back? The reason why they keep wanting to go back is because although they were no longer slaves, they still felt like they were. Slavery for freed Israel is a feeling. It's not a real status. It's a mindset. It's not an objective reality. It's an old habit. It is not their real identity. Christian, when you got saved, you are no longer sinners. You're not. You may still feel like one. You may still think like one. You may still act like one. But that is not who you objectively are anymore. Let's, let's be clear. You are not a sinner saved by grace. No. You were a sinner saved by grace. You are now a saint through and through because of what Christ did for you. Your old self in his or her entirety died and you're resurrected with Christ, a new creature altogether. And that's Paul's second argument here of why you shouldn't sin anymore, Christian, because that's not who you are anymore. That's not who you are now. You're not a sinner. You're a saint. So why act differently than who you are internally? Why go back to a Pharaoh who's dead? Why go back to an Egypt that's gone when you're no longer a slave? So unlearn our old habits and let us become the person we already are in Christ, not because we're legally bound to do so, but because that's who we are. Get Egypt out of your system. Whatever your Egypt may be, pride, anger, lust, jealousy, social acclaim, racial superiority, whatever. Get it out of your system. Not because you're legally bound to do so, but because those things are no longer your real masters. They just feel like they are, but they're not. Okay? But if you're like me, those feelings are real. <laughs> and those desires are real, and they're so strong that it sometimes dictates me more than my new identity does. And if you're like me, some of us, we've been out of Egypt for a long time, but for some reason, Egypt just seems to not escape our system. It's still in us. Why is that? Why does it take 
so long for some of us to get Egypt out of our system. Well, Paul, thankfully, in these last few verses, explains why. Why it takes most of us so long to leave our old ways and live out our new identity. Okay, why is that? Well, it's because although your heart has been made righteous and although your whole person has been recreated, what your physical body does still leaves a spiritual imprint upon your soul. That's why. What do I mean? Let's get to it. Our last point. Your, your physical body is spiritual significant. Okay. This, this whole time up to this point, what Paul's been doing is that he's been talking about realities that are spiritual, right? He's been talking about spiritual changes that's happened to you that, that's real and that's true, like a new heart and a new resurrection as, as a new creature. Those are real changes that happen, but you can't touch these changes. You can't see these changes, right? Like if a doctor does an x-ray of your heart, you know, it's not like after you become a Christian, your heart's all of a sudden going to be shaped like a cross or something. Like you, you can't see what this new heart looks like. Or if you haven't met a friend for a long time and the last time they saw you is before you became a Christian, they see you now, they're not going to be able to tell just by looking at you physically that you've been you resurrected as a new creature now. They can't physically tell that. So when Paul talks about a new heart and a new creature, he's talking about spiritual changes. And that might give us the impression, well, you know, if all these changes kind of happen in the spiritual realm out there, you know, there's not much I can do about that, right? I can't do anything to affect those things because I don't live in the spiritual realm that Paul's talking about where all these cool things happen. I live in this physical realm now. But let's not fall into that mistake. Let us go to verses 12 and 13 and see what Paul says here. He says, let not sin, therefore, reign in your what? mortal body, in your mortal body. Paul here is bringing it back to the physical realm. The mortal body here means your physical body, your arms, your legs, your eyes, your mouth, your ears, your brain, everything physical about you, your habits, all these things apparently has something to do with your spirituality. It, it connects somehow. And there are two ways, Paul says here, in how it is you can use your mortal body. Verse 13, you can either use it as instruments or weapons for unrighteousness, or verse 14, you can use it as instruments for righteousness. Here's the point. Paul's saying that, yes, you are spiritually a new creature with a spiritual new heart, okay? But don't let those spiritual realities make you undervalue your physical body. It matters, and it matters a lot. What your eyes see, what your hands do, what your mouth drinks, what your tongue says, what your mind thinks, where your feet go, what your finger clicks, all those things matter spiritually. Those decisions affect you spiritually. Oh, you've been brought out of Egypt, that's for sure. But how you use your mortal bodies will affect your spirituality and will determine how fast or how slow Egypt's going to get out of you. Douglas Moo, a New Testament commentator, said it well. He said, the battle is a spiritual one, but it is fought in the arena of the physical body. The reason as to why many of us are so slow to grow in maturity in Christ is because we've, I think, perhaps over-spiritualized Christianity. And we're not mindful of how we use our mortal bodies and how that affects our spiritual growths. Now, I don't want to fall into, 
you know, legalism here, of course. But what are your eyes seeing in a daily basis? What is your mind thinking about in a daily basis? What is your mouth saying in a daily basis? What are your ears hearing in a daily basis? What are your fingers clicking in a daily basis? Are they things that Paul says in the New Testament that are true, good, and beautiful, or are they not? And the temptation here is to say, but, you know, I don't need to do all those things. He's already forgiven me. He loves me. Whatever, whether or not I do these things, of course he does. But that's not the issue here. The issue is that your bodily habits affect your spirituality. How much you expose your eyes to God's words, how much your mouths utter his praises, how much your ears hear the gospel, how much your hands serve his purposes, how much your lips bask in prayer. All these physical activities matter spiritually. And by the way, notice, just to up the heat a little bit more here, there's no neutral ground. Paul says either your mortal body is being used as instruments of unrighteousness or as instruments of righteousness. There's no in-between. At any given time, your body is going to be used for one or the other. The battle is a spiritual battle, but it is fought in the arena of the physical body. By the way, I find this interesting. Doesn't this shed light on why for God to save us, he had to take on a human body. In order to save us, God, a spiritual being with no body parts, the Bible says, decided to put on what? Human flesh. In other words, a physical body in the person of Jesus Christ. Why? In order to accomplish our salvation. Why? Because the battle is a spiritual battle, but it is fought in the arena of the physical body. Do you know why you're saved? You're saved because God entered into the arena for you. He came down and took on flesh in the person of Christ. And he used all his bodily members as instruments for righteousness every second of the day in his time on earth. Do you know how hard that is to do? You know how hard it is to do. I know how hard it is to do. Jesus did that. But yet, those hands he used to feed the needy and serve God he also used to carry a heavy cross. Those feet he used to pursue sinners were also given up by him to be nailed onto a cross. And that mouth that he used to pray with and to bless others with and to praise God with, that mouth he also willingly shut as he was unjustly led to the slaughter. Do you know why we're saved? Because God entered the fight he entered the arena in a mortal body just like ours. And although he won the battle in his mortal body, at the end, he willingly gave it up so that he can take our place who lost and taste our defeat for us. That's why we're saved. He entered the arena and won it for us and died in our place. Look, you will never stop using your body as instruments for sin until you see how Jesus used his body as an instrument for your salvation. So stop sinning. Because sin is no longer your master. You have a new heart now. You're a new person now. And because how you use your body affects you in a real way spiritually.
Now, as if realizing how daunting of a demand this is, Paul ends in verse 14 with grace again. Because I think he knows. He knows just how hard it is, just how difficult of a task it is, you know, for us to use our mortal bodies as instruments of righteousness. So he reminds us again in verse 14 that sin has no dominion over you because you're not under law. You're under grace. You're in this realm of grace. You're in the power of grace. You're forgiven. Where the legal debt of sin increases, grace abounds all the more. You're forgiven. You have a new heart that loves righteousness. It does. You're a new creature, and you're beloved beyond measure. So stop using your body as instruments for sin, but use it to serve your new king. Not just because you're liable to a legal written set of laws, but because when the Christian sins, as Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it once, when the Christian sins, they know they're not sinning against law, but against love. Don't sin because you are a beloved child of God. That's who you are now. That's who you are. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we ask you that you make these spiritual realities that are often so intangible and unseen by our physical eyes. Help us, give us the vision to see that it's real, that it's true, and that I'm no longer now a sinner, but I'm a saint. Yes, that still at times feel and think and act like a sinner, but that's no longer my identity. Give us the power um, to shake off our old selves that so often entangle, Paul says. It's dead, but it still entangles us. Help us shake it off and let us live fully in this new identity we've been given. And help us see that we are a new people living under a new king in a new kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness, of grace and mercy. Help us see Jesus and what he's done for us on that cross that you, a spiritual God, took on a human mortal body to live the life we should have lived, but yet died the loss and the death we deserved. Because of that now, having faith in you unites us to you and resurrects us with you in this new resurrection power. Make this power real. Help your church, help this church be righteous and holy Oh, what a day it is when the church stops measuring itself by its quanti quantitative growth, but by its qualitative growth. Make us holy. Make us righteous. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.